Welcome to the Alan and Overy podcast. My name is Una Harrison, and I'm a senior PSL within the firm's Brexit team. With Brexit negotiations continuing to dominate the headlines, and the prospect of a speedy resolution as yet not in sight, the question of the potential impact of a no-deal outcome on insolvency and restructuring proceedings is gaining urgency. One key issue that is attracting a significant amount of scrutiny is the question of what a hard Brexit could mean for the English scheme of arrangement, particularly in the context of European cross-border restructuring. Joining me today to discuss the future of the English scheme and cross-border insolvency proceedings in a post-Brexit world are Jennifer Marshall, who is a partner in our global restructuring group, and Lucia Conley, a senior associate within the same group. Whether you're a corporate who's borrowed monies from UK or European banks and who may at some stage in the future find find yourself in financial distress, or whether you're a lender or investor to a European company who may be concerned about how they will recover their investment from a distressed company post-Brexit, a key question will be, will Brexit make any difference to the way European cross-border restructurings and insolvencies are conducted? That's exactly the subject that we are going to be looking at in this podcast. But just to put this into context, when I started practising over 20 years ago, it was not uncommon to be involved in a purely domestic case involving a UK borrower or UK lenders. But that is simply not the case today, where almost every restructuring we do has a cross-border element. To give one example of that, uh, I have been involved in the receivership of the OW Bunker Group, where there are borrowers and guarantors in 23 different jurisdictions, and 16 of the borrowers went into insolvency proceedings in different jurisdictions across the world, many of those European jurisdictions. The great advantage of the European uh, insolvency regulation is that it gives you a a framework for conducting those types of of cases. Would, Would you agree with that, Lucy? Absolutely. It's um, it's arguably been the most comprehensive piece of European legislation we've had in the last 18 years um, in the field of insolvency, of course. And the key attractiveness of it is that it provides consistent and predictable answers in in those cross-border cases, answering tricky questions that we come across all the time, including who can open proceedings, where they should be opened, what law will apply in those proceedings, and the effect those proceedings will have in other European states, including on creditors' rights, actually. It's very significant. And it's, it's this consistency and predictability that the European insolvency regulation has given us that has made things simpler and arguably quicker and cheaper than it might otherwise have been. So I don't think we should underestimate the potential impact of losing that piece of regulation um, post-Brexit. But also, I don't know if you agree, Jenny, but I think that uh, we've done cross-border cases before 2000, before the regulation came into force, and we do them today with, um, with Asian borrowers, American borrowers. And although there may be more hurdles, I don't think they're necessarily insurmountable. I guess... The, the impact may be more um, uh, depending on whether we have a soft Brexit or, or a hard Brexit. So Lucy, turning to that last point, if I may, 
You mentioned that the outcome may depend on what provisions are put in place um, as a result of Brexit negotiations, whether it's hard or soft. Has there been any indication as to the UK government's thinking in this regard? To a certain extent, yes. Um, the, the two main pieces of Brexit legislation, if I can call it that, um, so the EU Withdrawal Act and uh, the um, EU Withdrawal Agreement, um, they don't, neither of them expressly mention the European Insolvency Regulation, but they do give us an idea of where things might be heading in uh, cross-border insolvencies and restructurings. The starting point would be the, the European Union Withdrawal Act. And what that act does is it will onshore all European legislation as at the point of exit into UK domestic law. That will include the European insolvency regulation, but very importantly, uh, from our perspective, is that that onshoring is subject to a power to correct deficiencies. And that term includes... Um, European legislation that relies on reciprocity and the European insolvency regulation falls squarely in that bucket. It's a reciprocal regime among member states for the conduct of cross-border insolvencies and restructurings. Um, the next piece of, of key Brexit legislation is the EU withdrawal agreement and we saw a draft of that in March of this year. And one of the key things from, from our perspective is that it, it does provide for a transitional period. Now, if, and it's a big if, if the withdrawal agreement is finalised and approved by, by the EU and the UK, then we will have a transitional period potentially to the end of December 2020, where the European insolvency regulation will continue to apply as it does today, which is a positive step, but whether we get there or not is still still TBD. Um, more recently, there's been a technical notice from the, from the UK government, which gives us an indication of what a no deal or hard Brexit might look like. That was only issued in, in the middle of September. And we know that if there is no deal, that the European insolvency regulation will be repealed because of the deficiencies as a result of the reciprocal regime. And we know that also the judgments regulation, important for schemes potentially, will be repealed. But we also know that the Rome 1 rules on the law applicable to contractual matters will be retained. So overall, it, it feels to me like Brexit is going to have more of an impact on European insolvencies rather than restructurings and, and the use of the English scheme of arrangement. And I'd just add to that that the government has indicated that the draft statutory instrument that would implement that no-deal hard Brexit uh, should be available hopefully in the next few weeks, but certainly no later than December of this year. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Jennifer. Could I possibly go back to basics and ask quite a simple question? What is a scheme of arrangement and why could this be impacted by Brexit? Well, that's a good question because we're very proud of our scheme of arrangement. In fact, some might say that it's one of the UK's greatest exports at the moment. So a scheme of arrangement is a procedure under the company's legislation, which is used to restructure the debts of both English and foreign companies. And it's a very key tool in, in the, uh, the toolbox of, of a restructuring lawyer. One of the reasons that the scheme is so powerful is because of the speed of access to the UK courts. You can get before an English judge very quickly, uh, particularly if the case is urgent. 
The second reason why I think schemes are so powerful is the commercial judges who deal with schemes are very familiar with schemes. Many of them may have been barristers in a former life who were used to putting together um, schemes of arrangement in that context. So they know schemes inside out. Thirdly, uh, is the very flexibility of the scheme. You can do anything from what was called the scheme light in MetInvest, uh, where we used a scheme of arrangement to impose a moratorium, moratorium on creditor action uh, while the restructuring was put through. You can use a scheme to amend and extend facilities to push back maturity dates to give the company more time to pay its debts. Or you can do a full-blown debt-to-equity uh, conversion via a scheme. So they're hugely flexible um, procedures. Schemes are particularly important in the context of foreign companies, and we've seen lots of examples of an English scheme being used in relation to a foreign incorporated company. And in that context, the English court needs to be satisfied that the scheme will be effective in the relevant overseas jurisdiction. And at the moment, there are various ways of doing that. And it very much depends on how you see schemes, what bucket you put the scheme of arrangement into. If you were to see a scheme as part of insolvency law, then the natural way of getting them recognised would be the European insolvency regulation that Lucy mentioned a couple of minutes ago. And of course, that could well be affected by Brexit, depending on whether we have a hard or soft Brexit. But that is not where we've chosen to put schemes. And the UK chose not to list schemes in the annexes to the insolvency regulation because we don't see schemes as part of insolvency law. We use them to restructure the debt of solvent as well as insolvent companies. Now, the second bucket is that you could possibly see the sanction order as a judgment, uh, which would then fall under the judgments regulation. Again, uh, a piece of European legislation that could well be affected by Brexit. Now, if that is the case, there is a bit of good news because under the technical paper that Lucy mentioned a couple of minutes ago, uh, the UK indicated that we are going to ratify the Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements. Now, we could do a separate uh, podcast just on Hague uh, and we don't have time to get into that today, but it's worth saying that Hague in some ways is similar to the judgments regulation and it might fill some of the gaps uh, that might be left by that regulation, although there are some very important differences. And then finally, if you were to see the scheme as part of contract law, then Rome 1 becomes very important uh, because there is a rule that if it's an English law finance document, and many finance documents are governed by English law at the moment, then you need an English process such as a scheme to vary or discharge uh, those English law debts. Now, interestingly, Rome 1 will not be affected by Brexit because Rome 1 doesn't specify that the applicable law has to be the law of a member state. So we will continue to get the benefit of Rome 1, even when we leave the EU. And I think just to add to that, J Jennifer and I have been discussing with our European colleagues the potential impact of a Brexit on recognition of the English scheme in their jurisdiction. And I think I would say the Netherlands, Spain and Belgium are, are together in perhaps taking the view that the scheme is part of contract law and the principles in Rome 1 or, or generally principles of private international law will assist in getting recognition of an English scheme in those jurisdictions. But then on the other hand, um, jurisdictions such as Germany and Poland, things are less certain and uh, those jurisdictions, there are commentators that may take the view that the scheme, particularly if it's in relation to an insolvent company, that you're veering towards 
um, it being part of insolvency law where perhaps recognition isn't as straightforward. But, um, but it remains to be seen what they think post-Brexit. Lucy, you mentioned the European insolvency regulation. Is this the only source for recognising foreign insolvency proceedings within the UK? No, it's not. No, we have a number of sources uh, for recognition in the UK. They would include uh, the common law principles of insolvency assistance, which is open to all. Um, We also have the cross-border insolvency regulations, which is the UK's implementation of the UNSATRAL model law on insolvency proceedings. We're one of only a few European jurisdictions to have implemented that model law. We also have section 426 of our Insolvency Act, but that source only applies to certain designated countries. And I think it's fair to say that we have to recognise that none of these sources of recognition are as comprehensive as the European Insolvency Regulation. They are much more limited in the type of recognition you can get and and who can take advantage of them in in certain circumstances. Uh, one One of the key issues with these other sources of recognition is that they they do not allow or only allow in certain limited circumstances the recognition of foreign insolvency related judgments. We have a, a fairly recent Supreme Court decision that has said that the English court cannot recognise or give effect to a foreign insolvency judgment under common law principles unless the other party was present in that foreign jurisdiction where the judgment was obtained or that that party had submitted to the foreign court. And those are difficult questions to to answer. And it's worth adding that the position in that regard might get better in the future because UNSATRAL have just adopted the text for a new model law which would give recognition to insolvency-related judgments. It's obviously very good news. But I would say that no member state has yet implemented that because it's only just been passed by UNSATRAL. And as Lucy said, the fact that very few European jurisdictions have adopted the original model law, uh, I think it will be a while before we see an uptake in relation to the new model law. So, you know, it's, it's a good sign for the future, but it's certainly not going to happen overnight. And then the final thing I think I would mention just in this space is that we do have the so-called rule in Gibbs that a lot of people have been talking about recently. This is a 19th century rule, although it has been applied quite recently by the English courts. Uh, which states that you can only vary or or discharge an English law contract uh, via an English process. And that rule is going to be incredibly important post-Brexit in relation to our recognition of incoming uh, insolvency and reorganisation proceedings. So you've said how helpful the European insolvency regulation is for conducting cross-border cases. But clearly, from what you said before, Lucy, it's based on reciprocity. Clearly, we can't control whether the EU will continue to recognise UK proceedings. But why don't we just do the right thing and continue to recognise EU proceedings, regardless of any lack of reciprocity? Well, let me take that one, because this has been a debate that has been uh, raging uh, amongst uh, practitioners for a while now. And it's very tempting to say we should just do the right thing, regardless of what the rest of Europe does. But in my view, that would be a very dangerous thing to do. The European regulation only really works because it is a reciprocal arrangement uh, and there are safeguards built into that that were strongly negotiated by the different member states as the regulation went through its legislative journey uh, regarding choice of law 
And so, for example, the regulation requires uh, the choice of law of certain member states to be recognised in certain cases. So, for example, to give an example, if you had a French insolvency proceeding at the moment, that proceeding would not be able to affect security over assets located in another member state, such as the UK. Or let's imagine you had a Greek insolvency uh, process. Uh, the regulation states that rights of set-off are determined by the law applicable to the insolvent debtor's claim. So if you had a, an English law-governed ISTA, uh, the regulation would insist that that governing law be respected in, in terms of set-off. Now, once the UK is no longer a member state, there is no guarantee that the other European member states will continue to apply these safeguards uh, to English secured assets or English um, law-governed contracts. They might do under their own private international law, but it's not a guarantee. So we need to have the right not to recognise insolvency proceedings where those safeguards no longer apply. And that's why I think we can't do this unilaterally and just agree to recognise European insolvency proceedings come what may. Thank you, Jennifer. In conclusion, if I may, given all the uncertainty about what might happen at the political level, is there anything clients should be doing now to prepare for Brexit? It's, it's an interesting question and we, we do get asked it sometimes, particularly in relation to whether clients should be looking to an alternative governing law, moving away from English law, or whether they should be looking at um, different jurisdictions, so moving away from an English jurisdiction clause. And uh, I strongly believe, and I know others do too, that, that clients should not be doing that. They should not be moving away. We do not recommend that you change your governing law of your contracts to another member state. There are key advantages to using English law and they will continue post-Brexit. And the same is true for, for jurisdiction clauses. There may be some advantages to looking as to whether your English jurisdiction clause is an exclusive jurisdiction clause or, or the LMA-style asymmetric jurisdiction clause, but you really need to look at, at that in the round and in the broader context of your particular circumstances as to whether you would favour an asymmetric jurisdiction clause or an exclusive English jurisdiction clause. There's an, there certainly is no one-size-fits-all. I would totally agree with that in relation to choice of law and jurisdiction. And then, of course, the question arises, well, what about choice of restructuring um, tool? Uh, and again, I think it is too early uh, to be making any decisions on that. Now, it is definitely the case that a number of European jurisdictions are introducing new restructuring tools, perhaps to cash in on the uncertainty surrounding um, Brexit. And the proposed Dutch scheme of arrangement in particular has been talked about quite a bit. Uh, and it certainly does sound very promising. But I think it's worth mentioning that that scheme hasn't yet been passed into law. Uh, and when it is passed into law, it's going to have to go through a period of being tested by the courts so it's probably a little bit too early for everyone to be jumping into that particular um, bandwagon uh, just at the moment. I would say that for all the reasons we've discussed, and given the strengths of the English scheme, I think restructuring practitioners will find a way uh, of continuing to ensure that the scheme is recognised. I think it's very important that the UK can, maintains its competitive advantage by making sure that the scheme is the best process. And there are certainly proposals at the moment for how the government might improve uh, UK restructuring procedures, uh, including the scheme. 
I think I would say that there's probably likely to be a greater impact in the context of insolvency proceedings with the possible need for parallel proceedings and all the additional costs that that could entail. But again, it's too early, I think, yet to say exactly what the impact of Brexit is going to be on that. And as Lucy did say at the beginning, we did manage to do this before 2000, perhaps in a rather different universe, and we still do manage to do it in relation to non-European cases. So in, in conclusion, I would say that Brexit may well have an impact, but it's one that we will be able to, to live with and deal with uh, when we know what form of Brexit uh, we're in for. Jennifer, Lucy, thank you very much for a very informative discussion. Yeah.